So I'll throw that out there to you guys. What do you think about Asimov Posting's objection to our reading of Harry and Doors? She's wrong. She's dead wrong. Okay. This is Alexander Savig, and you are listening to Stars End Podcast. Welcome to season three of Star's End, a podcast dedicated to Isaac Asimov's classic sci-fi series, Foundation. We are reading Asimov's fiction this season, but we'll keep you informed on show news for Apple TV's season two. While we all wait for that, the three of us will be here with our own inimitable take on Asimov's universe. Please join us. You'll be glad you did. Welcome to episode 10 of season three of the Star's End podcast. I am reliably informed it's our 33rd episode. So if you haven't listened to the rest of the episodes, go back and, and start at the beginning. What are you waiting for? Get right, in there. Get, get busy for crying out loud. <laughs> Read these things. This week, we're going to move ahead in Forward the Foundation and read a section called Cleon the First. Uh, we have a couple of uh, housekeeping things to take care of. Uh, one is that uh, Dan, I saw uh, published somewhere an interview with the uh, costume designer from the TV series. And I, I guess it was just the first time I'd seen the TV series back in the news for a while. So I just wanted to bring that up and maybe we'll put a link down in the uh, down in the notes. Yes, we'll put that in the show notes and we'll tweet it out as well. And if you if you're interested in in how they approached putting fashion into the future. Um, this is the interview for you. Um, the other thing is that uh, we wanted to respond to one of our one of our favorite listeners and uh, one time and possibly future guest on on the podcast, Asimov Posting, who um, took some exception to our analysis of Harry and Doors and the big kiss that they had at the end of Prelude to Foundation. Uh, just to remind everyone we kind of took the view that it was a bit creepy. It was a bit like one of those old time movies where the woman objects to being kissed. And then the man goes in and gets the kiss and the woman says, Oh, that was wonderful. And they, they, they ride off into the sunset. So we found it a little bit creepy. And I think we also posited that maybe doors was only doing that because of a compulsion from First of all, the second law where she was ordered to take care of Harry and also from the first law uh, where she believed that she was doing what Harry needed her to do. So I'm going to go through the objection that we that we got and then we can we can talk about it for a couple of minutes. So here is a tweet thread from Asimov posting. 
He says, catching up on the last two Stars End podcast episodes, I've been traveling and woefully use earplugs when I fly, so I can't listen to podcasts, and I do have a thought of disagreements. While Harry is pretty lousy in general to women, parallel to how Asimov himself was, no doubt, I saw the exchange between him and Doors as a albeit clunky attempt to express that the relationship was, in its own way, consensual. Harry went in for the kiss, expecting Doors to get nothing and walked away and walk away as a mere colleague, but Doris specifically expressed her enjoyment and then asked herself to continue in a cheesy cinematic way. Plus, notably, her thoughts on her relationship with Harry directly mirror those of Daniil for Elijah. Uh, Asimov posting then provides a couple of segments where, indeed, we do see almost an identical scene between Doris and Harry, where Doris says she would, wants what's good for him, even if she wasn't what she was. And where Daniil, in a previous book, says a similar thing to Elijah about how he would want to save Elijah, even if he wasn't as he is. And as he is, of course, meaning he was a robot. And then uh, Asimov posting goes on to say, also note that Doors' recognition that their continued relationship would not be good for Harry makes her continuation of it antagonistic to the three laws rather than in fulfillment of. So she's acting directly against the laws, mildly, because she loves Harry, not the reverse. TLDR, I explain the validity and existence of positronic robotic desire as different yet equivalent and embrace Asimov's awkward attempts at exemplifying a CFE culture where a few others had. And for those who don't know, C slash FE stands for carbon and iron. In other words, humans and robots together. So I'll throw that out there to you guys. What do you think about Asimov Posting's objection to our reading of Harry and Doors? She's wrong. She's dead wrong. Okay, let's move on. <laughs> we took care of that. No, no, I, 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 well, first of all, I, uh, I want to thank her for the thoughtful response. It was, it was an interesting thread. Um, and it gave me something to think about. Um, I guess I would say, you know, um, the comparison to Daniil and Elijah is a good one and it's relevant. And um, that does kind of weigh on her side. I'll definitely grab this. I think in, in general, I'm not persuaded that it's the correct reading, but I, I am persuaded that it's a reasonable reading and that there's, there's some ambiguity uh, in that relationship. I still, I'm still, I'm still bothered by it. You know, I, I don't know. Uh, but, uh, but, you know, I don't fault uh, what Morgan says. I think that that's a, it's a good take, even if I'm, it's, not one that I'm ready to fully go along with. Yeah. I mean, it makes a lot of sense. That's the fun part of an, any kind of analysis like this is thinking about all the different ways you can interpret things and um, getting to ponder them. That's part of my fun with this. Well, I, I'll just throw in that, you know, um, as we know from the uh, new canon, that uh, that Doris has the ability to read Harry's emotions. Mm -hmm. uh, that it's possible that she did not realize until the time of the kiss and the emotions associated with it how intense Harry's feelings really were for her, and that uh, because of that, that created a first law reason why she would, uh, you know, that she realizing that Harry needed her to ask to be kissed again. Under the first law, she had to do it. Now that doesn't again. That doesn't mean that uh, that this analysis by Morgan is is wrong. I think it's it's pretty thoughtful, and uh, and of course later on, um, in forward the foundation we 
do get a little visit to the inside of Doris's mind at one point in which she thinks about why she has feelings for Harry, what her feelings for Harry are. And they're very much like the, the Mr. Data and his friends, you know, the, the, uh, the idea that, and, and Daniil, by the way, also expresses the same thing about how uh, it's easier to think it's easier to operate in the presence of friends and in the presence of, of loved ones. So, you know, that is kind of Doors's version of love. And, and of course, throughout Forward the Foundation, she also retains an intense second law compulsion to protect Harry. Uh, we assume orders that were given to her originally by Cheddar slash Demerzel, but probably that she has built on herself. I mean, she's made it her reason for existence is to protect Harry and later on Rach as well. Yeah, I think that... Um... You know, it, we do get so, enough hints that positronic pathways can sort of develop habitual ways of running, right? That that allows robots to form some kind of attachments. That I wouldn't I wouldn't say it's impossible that something in Harry's need, through uh, the magic of the first law, convinces doors that in order to be good to Harry, she needs to love Harry honestly. <laughs> like, like, and so that she kind of works herself into fondness for him. And that that's the natural process of the closest a positronic robot could come to falling in love, something like that. So it's, it's possible. I love this, by the way, because this to me is, you know, going all the way back to the very beginning of our podcast and talking about what, what science fiction is. Yeah. And the way that I think that one of the things you can do with a robot is you can investigate the motivations of a being that does not share the kind of evolutionary processes that we went through. You know, the things that drive us were developed by an evolutionary process and they might be, we don't really know what they are, but they might be reduction of pain and, you know, and, and survival and a bunch of things that really underlie everything that we do. You know, all the, the instincts that we have that, that, that have developed over the, the millennia, you know, billions of years, really, going back before there were humans. But, you know, one of the questions I'm always interested in is, well, what if we encounter someone who doesn't share the same drives that we share? And in, in the Three Laws robots, we have that creature. We have someone whose drives are provided to them through these laws. And I, I love these investigations of what that could mean. Uh, I wish there were more of them. I mean, I think that's what, you know, the great thing about Robots and Empire is the conversation between Discard and Daniil about how they should think about things and, and how they develop the zeroth law and what the implications are. And uh, I think that's, that's just a great science fiction trope, if you like. What is it? It strikes me. Have you ever read um, The Terminal Experiment by, and now I'm blanking on his name, um, which is a shame because I uh, this this guy's great. Um, and what's the what's I don't think so. What's the uh, so the um, uh, the scientist makes three computer copies of his brain and he changes each of them in a fundamental way. I think one is an actual copy. One has no sense of mortality. Maybe no one has no sense of a physical body. 
um, it's been it's been like 20 years since I've read it. Um, so I just it was googled, very good. I just googled and this is by Robert J. Sawyer. Yeah, Robert Sawyer is won the 95 Nebula. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So all of his stuff is terrific. Oh, or at least everything that. I've read by him has been terrific. So okay. That that seems right in the, right in the wheelhouse here. So I'll put it on my reading list. Thanks for the recommendation. All right. Then we've we've addressed that. I think our conclusion is uh, we're right as usual, right? And everyone else is wrong. So, <laughs> of course, as TLDR, we're right, you're wrong. <laughs> Thank Wait, you what, for the what, feedback. What was it that, what? <laughs> Thanks for playing. Yeah, what was it that Joel called us? The, the, the premier um, analysts. In podcasting. In podcasting. And he yes. didn't even qualify it as saying the premier foundation analyst. That's right. Yeah. Premier analyst. And so uh, Joel, obviously very intelligent. Um, <laughs> yeah. And I, I analyze that statement to be true. <laughs> well, there you go. And that's coming from one of the premier analysts in podcasting. So uh, QED. Who, who, who am I to question, Dan? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Shall we talk about Forward the Foundation and Cleon the First? Uh, yes. Yes, but hold on okay let, let me let me because i um i got a couple of lags in the audio so i'm gonna move upstairs to be right next to my wi-fi router okay. and and then we'll start again so just give me one minute i'll, I'll we'll talk amongst <laughs> ourselves <laughs> uh, i uh I, I tweeted out uh just a little while ago um a new a new word game, the as immortal. Oh, yes, you, have you, to guess a, you have to guess a, a six letter word from the Asimov canon. Uh, the hint, it's always Daniil. <laughs> <laughs> so cute. did Morgan write this? I wrote that. Morgan did like it. Uh, okay. <laughs> no, I, I thought maybe she came up with the game. No, <laughs> I came up with the game. Uh. Uh, spoiler alert, there is no actual game. But uh, <laughs> yeah, so did, did, did you guys get from my, um, you know, because because I put up a, a slightly altered version of the logo? Yes, I like that. I love you. Did, did you yeah. get that? I was suggesting that we talk about strange new worlds. I, I did not get that. I knew I, that it was I, a Star Trek reference. I didn't. Yeah. Um, I just watched Strange New Worlds, but uh, yeah, I, I pulled the I pulled the Star Trek star out of the right. No, I yeah, see that. Did you want to talk about Strange New Worlds here? Uh, uh, not not real. I, I I wanted to say that I wanted to talk about Strange New Worlds I more see. than I wanted to talk about Strange New is Worlds. Is there some is there some foundation or Asimov connection that we spotted in Strange New Worlds? Not that I can think of. And you haven't yet seen the finale of Picard. I've not yet seen the finale of Picard. Okay. And then we won't spoil that any further than I already did. <laughs> That's okay. I'd, see, I'd seen that one already. I'd seen that already. Thank God. Thank God. Someone else had already spoiled it for you. All right. Yeah, there's some there's some interesting stuff that I won't spoil. Well, Strange New Worlds. Have you watched Strange New Worlds, Dan? Yep. Loved it. So they they I loved that they brought in uh, Sam Kirk. I thought that was great. Oh, yeah. No, really, I really was, head fake this on that. That, <laughs> that. that was such a head fake. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. The mustache has to go, though. <laughs> what, Dalites are not allowed in Starfleet? <laughs> that is not in any way a Dalite mustache. 
I'm sorry. <laughs> that is, that looks like it's drawn on with a mascara pencil is what that looks like. That's a terrible mustache. But anyway, you know, he looks like somebody posted it. There's a character in, uh, in Galaxy Quest. Mm. Guy. I saw that. Oh, yeah, yeah. You, you just episodes you, of the show and he has a mustache like oh my internet connection is unstable yeah you Did were quiet there for a moment well that's good this is all getting cut anyway let's go back to forward the foundation now that dan is is back with us so forward the foundation cleon the first the second of the novellas i guess that was published by asimov separately uh, and again, 25 sub chapters. I'm going to run through them to do a summary. And I'm going to, I am literally going to run because uh, otherwise we'll be here all night. So in the first section, we see Harry, who has now been ensconced as the first minister for uh, 10 years. And he is walking through the imperial grounds and meets man. Um, what's his name? Mandel Gruber, the gardener. Yeah, and he has Gruber. a little conversation with Mr. Gruber. Um I want to get to the whole thing about gardening because there is, I believe, at least an echo of a, of a connection to the TV show with all of the, the gardener stuff. But he has a pleasant conversation with the gardener. Nothing much comes of it. It's kind of Chekhov's gardener because we're going to see this gardener again. You don't you don't put a gardener in chapter one unless you're going to fire him in a later chapter. So um, then we hear the story of how there was an assassination attempt on Harry in his first year as first minister. Uh, he was saved by doors and by Gruber, who ran up with a rake to try to uh, fight off someone who had a blaster. Doors got a reputation of being very fierce and violent. And that, since after that, they called her the Tiger Woman. Um, it's interesting to note that Cleon insisted that the plotters all be executed, which caused Doris quite a bit of distress. Uh, she wanted them to be let off, but uh, uh, Cleon insisted that they be executed. Uh, then we see Harry working with Hugo, who is about to turn 39. Uh, they've made some advances in psychohistory. We see the prime radiant and them looking at the math. And uh, they they don't quite have the ability to make real predictions from psychohistory, but that they can see that there's a choice between allowing the periphery to descend into chaos or allowing Trantor to descend into chaos. And Harry says, well, we have to stabilize Trantor. Oh, they can't do both. They have to pick one or the other. But Harry says, well, we have to stabilize Trantor because we're on Trantor and we're the ones developing psychohistory and psychohistory needs to be developed in order to save the empire from disaster. Uh, he then explains that conversation to Doors and they have a discussion, which in, I thought that was amusing, that includes Helicon, which had a, a group of people on it called globalists who insisted, despite all the evidence to the contrary, that Helicon was the only planet in existence. Uh, they they remind me very much of our flat earthers, really. Yeah, I, I honestly I was wondering at the time if they thought that not only was Helicon the only planet, but that it was a flat planet, probably riding on four <laughs> elephants standing on a turtle. <laughs> right. Um, yeah, and then he does mention that even though that was hundreds of years ago, there are always some of them around. There are always a few globalists around, and he was really talking about. Joranamites, who, although Jojo Joranam was neutralized and eventually died after being exiled to Nishaya, a planet he did not come from. Well, I don't know what that was all about when you played Silent there, but anyway, um, uh, that there might still be some Joranamites around. And of course, we're going to find in the next chapter that there indeed are Joranamites around. 
Our old friend Namarty is still there. Uh, he doesn't seem very pleasant. He's bringing journalism back. He is talking to a co-conspirator named Kaspel Kaspelov. Another great Asimov name. There are some really great Asimov names in this section. Kaspel Kaspelov is the first. There are more. But anyway, the plan is to cause infrastructure to break down through manual interference and things. And uh, Namarty wants Kaspelov to do something at the place where he works. And Kaspelov is worried that people are going to find out it's them or that something they're going to find something out. Uh, he reluctantly agrees to do it. He leaves and Namarty basically puts out a hit on him and says, this guy's not loyal. We're going to have him killed. So we establish Namarty's evil bona fides there in chapter five. Um, chapter six, Cleon and Harry take a walk in the grounds and they run into Gruber, which again, a- another great name. He's a gardener and he's called Gruber. I couldn't help thinking Grubber, you know, <laughs> and he's grubbing around in the dirt. He's a, he's a gardener. Anyway, uh, Cleon then is reminded of the story of uh, Gruber's heroics back of the assassination attempt. And he begins to get the idea into his head of promoting Gruber to chief gardener, something that Gruber absolutely does not want. He wants to be out in the sunshine, digging, grubbing, as it were, in the dirt. He does not want to be sitting in an office the way the chief gardener does, never actually getting out into the weather and doing any gardening. And we'll, we'll, let, we'll leave that hanging for later. Then we see a conversation with Rach and Harry indoors. Uh, they have a dinner together, kind of a Sunday dinner type of thing. They, they do talk about Jornamism. Uh, Rach is now working at the Ministry of Population, interestingly enough. And he talks about how Trantor would be better off with half the number of people that it has. Uh, if they evacuated the entire planet, rebuilt everything, right. and brought everyone back. <laughs> and of course, he's, he's being ironic. He, even he knows he can't, he can't do that. Then uh, Harry and Doors have a, pri- uh, not Harry and Doors, Harry and, and Rach have a private conversation in which once again, Harry is going to send Rach off on a secret mission, this time into Y, um, in order to find out whether the Joranamites are reorganizing. Uh, they have found Kaspilov's body. They do mention how many murders there are on Tranitar every day, and it's quite a large number. Uh, but anyway, that they're suspicious about Kaspilov's body. Uh, Harry also um, is looking at the pattern of the sabotage that's been going on around the planet and realizes that it has to be man-made, that it can't be random, that if it was random or just because the machines were breaking down, it would be clustered in certain places. It's a, it's a fairly decent statistical analysis of these, uh, of these breakdowns. So he wants Rach to go in and find out what's going on. And he makes him shave off his mustache. Uh, big mistake. Bad move, Harry. Uh, and Rach actually explicitly says that this is like castrating him. And uh, yeah, so he's because he doesn't want him to be recognized. So he wants him to wear high heels and he wants him to change his eyebrows and deepen his voice and shave off his mustache. So in the next chapter, Cleon takes it into his head to go ahead and promote Gruber to chief gardener. Also a big mistake. Gruber does not want that. Uh, Cleon is expecting Gruber to fall on his knees in gratitude. Uh, Gruber is trying desperately to convince Cleon not to do it. Uh, but Cleon, uh, Cleon's going to do it and he's going to promote him. Hey, Cleon doesn't have much control over too much that goes on in the galaxy. And this he can do. He can, he can make this promotion and God damn it, he's going to do it. So Gruber is promoted. Uh, Rach goes to Y. He goes to a bar. He meets a lady at the bar, uh, apparently a woman of uh, 
easy morals, ill repute, prostitute. I don't know what you want to call her. Uh, her name, though, is Manella Dubanqua, which I think is the best name in this whole in this whole chapter. I mean, <laughs> I, I just can't even fathom the thought process they came up with that name. <laughs> Manella Dubanqua. Wow. Anyway, uh, Rach is trying to get a job. He's trying to find Joranamites. And he talks about Jojo. In fact, he does find Manella talks to a man at another table who comes over and they talk about Jojo and uh, he gives the name Planchet, which I, I thought was or Planchet, I guess. But to me, it read like Planchet because as a as a great consumer of Alexander Dumas, um, Planchet in The Three Musketeers and the subsequent sequels is D'Artagnan's loyal servant. And I couldn't figure out whether that there was any connection there to the three musketeers or not, but it, it just stuck out at me that he named his, he named himself Planchet or Planchet anyway. And we meet a character. The character he meets is named Gleb Anderin. His first name is Gleb, which, okay. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. Yeah. So he is introduced and he is talking to Namarty, and Andorin says, uh, I found a young man for you who can help you. But he gets upset because he finds out that the target of Namarty's plot is not Cleon. It's Harry Seldon. And he wanted the target for reasons we're going to find out later. He wanted the target to be Cleon. And so he's a little, he feels betrayed. Uh, we see Manella and Rach. They are in bed together for free because Rach is so likable like everybody likes Rach she likes Rach too and we see Harry and Doris discussing Gleb Anderin um, he turns out that he is from the Wyan mayoral family and that's what's going on there he's an aristocrat and he considers himself a potential successor to the throne so we're going to see more about that we do see something I thought was very very interesting when Harry tells Doris that Rach is involved with Manella and Doris finds out what kind of woman she is. Doris is extremely disapproving on moral grounds. And I just thought that was very interesting. She's just kind of a prude about it. You know, she's like, I, I, that fascinated me. I'm, I'm not sure where that came from, but yeah, I, uh, you know, like, I think, the fact that Asimov is uh, feeling fairly free in the 80s to talk uh, somewhat explicitly about sexuality, I, I think there's still, you know, um, no consciousness of, let, let's say, like uh, tolerance or acceptance of sex workers in the culture as a whole going on. So probably at the time it would have read as a fairly mainstream view for a middle-class wife to have okay right i sure i'm yeah. absolutely it would have and and of course asimov really does as the story progresses take the opposite side of that yeah um although he leaves doors for many years very disapproving of manila um you know not to spoil too much forward but manila stays as a character in the in the story 
and um, and doors it takes doors a very long time to uh, to really even accept her because of her past. And I just thought it's very interesting that doors being doors couldn't get past that, you know, that she's she's she considers herself a proper woman and Manila is not. Wasn't that a, OK? Was there evidence that that this was something other than a cover? Because we, we find out toward the end of the the, the, the readings that it's uh, she's a security agent. Yeah, it doesn't matter to Doris, though. You yeah, know, good, yeah, but I mean, she may have no past like that whatsoever. Well, she she we know that both Gleb and Rach uh, simultaneously have sexual relationships with not the same time and place but you know at the same time they're both having a relationship with her and that's what doors seems to object to even after uh, as we spoil ahead in the story even after manella is revealed to be an undercover agent of the security forces who's doing that in order to protect harry cleon the galaxy and everybody yeah i i guess you know i hadn't thought about it before i offhand you know she her her role has always been protector right yeah. so um of Harry first, but but also of Rach. And so, you know, the, the sort of normal motherly protection towards a son yeah. uh, that would extend to disapproval of potential daughters-in-law. Which, We're getting into a whole edible thing. Yeah. Yeah. yeah well, <laughs> I mean, that's, uh, it, it seems, it seems like it's a, it's a, you know, it, like it's reasonable for who her character is set up to be. Yeah, right. yeah, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and you don't need the Oedipal. I mean, if, if we go back to our canon, right, we don't need the Oedipal thing because uh, it's a first law issue. Although the story does continue along Oedipal lines, uh, as we will find out later on. Anyway, moving along. Uh, next, we see Gleb and Namardi hashing it out. And we find out, in fact, Gleb wants to be emperor. He wants to get rid of Cleon. He considers himself an heir to the Wyan mares and therefore their claim to the throne. He wants it. And he's pretty upset. So he and, and Namardi hash it out and they figure out a way that eventually, once Namardi becomes first minister, he will be able to get rid of Cleon and get Gleb in there as emperor. In the next chapter, Rach meets Namardi and they talk about Joranimism and blah, blah, blah. And uh, in, a, in a, something that I actually appreciated quite a bit, uh, Namardi recognizes him instantly as Rach. He is not fooled by the disguise at all. And uh, I have a complaint about disguises all the time that, that that they work way too well in fiction and on TV. And I was very appreciative of Namardi seeing direct right through the like a laser beam right through that disguise. And uh, that's going to be bad news for for Rach. Uh, then we see Manella telling Rach he's going to get a new job. Uh, that new job is going to be. Uh, at the as a gardener, because when the, when there's a new chief gardener, they get rid of all the old gardeners and they bring in new gardeners from other planets. They're never from Trantor because Trantorians are uh, notably terrible gardeners because they don't have any gardens to garden. So they bring in. Uh, and in fact, Gruber himself is from Anacreon, interestingly enough. So Gruber comes to complain to Harry about having been promoted. Harry explains to him how Cleon really only has control over the, his, the, the 50 square miles or whatever it is around the palace, 150 square miles. And then Harry re realizes, oh, my God, they're going to bring in all new gardeners, and that's going to be a problem. So we, we hear the story of the new gardeners. We see Gleb and Namardi. They've arranged the infiltration. What's going to happen is that Planchet or 
Rach is going to kill Selden and that um, and then Gleb is going to kill Planchet. Now, how they're going to work that, we don't know yet, but we find out in the next chapter when Rach is hypnotized by a chemical that we have not seen before called desperance, which apparently lowers your self-esteem so much that you can then uh, you, you become very suggestible. And what they do is they give it to Rach. They've been giving it to Rach and um, he is basically brainwashed and is told he's going to take a blaster into the garden and he's going to kill the first minister. And then we see 12 gardeners arrive at the palace, including Rach. Uh, there's a lineup. Uh, Rach pulls out the blaster and aims it at Harry. And Harry is actually contemplating the physical process by which he is about to be vaporized. When all of a sudden there's, there's someone else shoots a blaster and it's Gleb Anderin who winds up getting killed. He was standing there behind behind Rach, ready to kill him after he killed Harry. And Manella reveals herself, as we've said, as this undercover security agent uh, who has saved the day by killing Gleb. Rach is still standing there pointing the blaster at Harry, but he's now just sort of catatonic. Uh, but but and so it seems like the day has been saved. But then all of a sudden there's a commotion over at the palace and we find out second giant twist that Cleon has, in fact, been assassinated and he's been assassinated by Gruber, the gardener who just could not stand the idea of being made chief gardener. And so he has killed Cleon in order to get out of it. And so we, we get a couple of great Asimov twists there in the last chapter. I, I couldn't help thinking of uh, Harry's martial arts twisting. And, that, uh, <laughs> and Asimov did a little twisting on us there in chapter 25. So, uh, all right, I, I've, I've been talking for a while. What, uh, what do you guys think of this section of Forward the Foundation? I saw it coming. Like the the gardener, that was that was the absolute uh, most reasonable thing to ever happen. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah it, it absolutely was. I'm I'm surprised to myself that I didn't see it coming. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, you know, honestly, I really like this section. I mean, it's I I don't think it's a perfect section, but um, you know, the whole thing that the fact that Harry and and Hugo are starting to get the outlines of psychohistory. It presents us with this problem, which is which is the first real kind of foundationy problem in the prequels that we've gotten, which is, you know, we we they've decided that either the center of the empire must fall or the periphery must must go, and they don't know which is better in the abstract but harry says we've got to keep the center solid because we're here and we're working on psychohistory and we need to finish psychohistory so let's just let's just keep I haven't finished my homework yet and and you know that that in itself like that actually justifies the otherwise pretty weird decision to have harry be the prime minister because like now you know the the so what they've gleaned about psychohistory uh, happens to have come up with, presented them up with a problem and in which Harry can actually take action as the, as the first minister to, to trying to solve it. So it, it seems like to me, it justifies the pretty weird decision at the end of the previous section to, to elevate Harry 
And so, yeah, so I, I enjoyed it. it. It kind of had a, a good old fashioned foundation, a feel to it. Hmm. Yeah. And I, I did like the aspect in there where they said, you know, we're actually seeing something new from psychohistory because common sense tells us that Trantor could be in trouble and common sense tells us that the periphery could be in trouble. Yes. We wouldn't have normally seen that it was actually an either or proposition without the mathematics. Yeah. I like that too. Yeah. I will, I will concede those points, but I will point out to you guys that that was one chapter out of 25. Oh yeah. (laughs) And that by and large, this story has absolutely nothing to do with foundation other than that kind of throwaway little, we have to save either the center or the periphery. Um, It's a little bit of a melodrama. It's got some twists and turns uh, but I couldn't feel like, like what, what has, how does this story actually, well, how is this part of foundation? You're, you're right. It's only one chapter in the exposition, but like, I, I saw it as being, as having a kind of structuring effect to it in that, like, it was after that, that Harry actually started paying, paying really close attention to what's going on, on Trantor. And he drew up that map with the globe and then figured out, okay, these can't be all random breakdowns uh, that are happening. And, and, then, and then sent Rach off to do some spying. It's sort of like it, the, the problem caused him to decide to ha- have this more intense focus on Trantorian security. And then that led, led through the end. Uh, and then it kind of at the, at the very last chapter at the very at the very closing after cleon is killed harry is like oh yeah like i thought it you know it we had saved like everything was just wrapped up and we came by the skin of our teeth and the center held and then this stupid gruber <laughs> just <laughs> walks in and kills the emperor <laughs> hans, hans gruber uh, hans gruber descendant yes. of hans gruber <laughs> <laughs> From, from Die Hard, uh, Die Hard, uh, the great uh, Alan Rickman character. <laughs> Can you imagine <laughs> the Gardner Gruber with that accent, the kind of disdainful? I didn't want to be chief gardener. Now, I did think, as I said before, I did think it was interesting how the plot revolves around the garden and the gardener. And that that is at least somewhat echoed in uh, a, a main plot line of the TV series, which is Brother yeah. Dawn's relationship with Azura the gardener and all the things that go on in the garden. And um, I just thought, I, it, I guess it's sort of along the lines of a, a kind of an Easter egg that clearly the producers of the TV show are aware of these prequels. I mean, they, that's where they got Demerzel from and, and all that. And that they that they centered the story in the garden the same way that the story here is centered in the garden. Yeah, absolutely. Like at the time, I didn't really think much of it. I think we mentioned it, but yeah, like the experience of rereading this section now really brought it home to me how that must have been a deliberate choice from the beginning of uh, writing season one, that 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 was where they were going to center some of this uh, kind of subversive uh, activity yeah i think the story is not at all the same obviously the right story is very different right and yet just the placement in the garden i thought is it's it's a it's an acknowledgement i think mm-hmm. i think it is yeah although although that you know this gardener story and the gardener story and the the um 
show are very different. Oh, very, very different. Absolutely yeah. nothing. The, yeah, the structure of this story and the structure of the last chapter were maddeningly similar. The whole there's a Juranumite, there, there's a Juranumite plot, oh, and yeah, we've got to send yeah. in Rach. Yeah, and, that's true. And, and, yeah, I mean, it's just like, yeah, it was like, like beat for beat practically. I mean, they're. I mean, that may have been on purpose. It may have been, you know, we, we do see Asimov uh, at times repeating stories for storytelling purposes, mm -hmm. like the way he has Cheddar Humman coming to save the day two times, but the third time it's not him. Um, you know, he may be recapitulating elements of the first story for what he thinks are good storytelling reasons, whether it actually works or not. Apparently, you know, for you, it doesn't seem to have worked. <laughs> I, I tend to lean towards towards your viewpoint as well. Like, what are we doing with Jordanites? There goes Rach again. Like, you know, can we write a new story, please? Um, but but maybe he did that on purpose. Maybe. But I mean, it, it's the it's another instance of, oh, my God, you know, Harry is supposed to be you know, the intellectual savior of the galaxy. And he thinks he, he thinks he can send his son into, I mean, and if it weren't Joranumites, maybe, but like, really, you're, you're going to send, you're going to send Rach, just shaving his mustache. You're going to send Rach who, who's, who's, who's met in the Marty um, to infiltrate the Joranumites and, and think, Oh, well, this will be fine. It's almost like Asimov wants us to think Harry is stupid. Because Jorick, because Namardi sees through the disguise immediately. It's not like it works. That's true. Uh, yeah, you know, I this this was not the strong point of the writing. I mean, it's you know, it's it's sort of very much in the vein of like kind of heavy-handed creation of drama and so so that you can have Rach be found out and have him be the one that's pointing the gun at his father at the climactic moment. Like, whereas you would think that the prime minister would have access to some security personnel <laughs> whom Namardi has never met before. I don't I know. Guess he says something about that, how he doesn't fully trust them or he doesn't have the presence <sighs> that Demerzel had where Demerzel could order people around. And He's the damn first minister and they're the security force. Well, that's why they need Shadow Master Obrecht. Yeah, that's right. They do. Kind of yeah. But, um, and his cloaking device. Yeah, Asimov, his cloaking device. Asimov really missed missed a chance there by <laughs> by not anticipating his adaptation. <laughs> yes, he did. He did. So yeah, I mean, I you know, Dan, what you said, uh, you know, that goes back to you know my use of the word melodrama. It, it felt very, yeah. the whole thing felt very melodramatic. That's and, true. Uh, yes, you know, like let's get Rach in there so that it's Rach who's pointing the blaster at Harry, and and Harry, you know, thinking about I'm about to be blastered, and let's talk about how blasters work and <laughs> you know, how horrible that is. <laughs> you know, Asimov can always be trusted to drop a quasi science lesson into the middle of a. <laughs> Of an action scene, <laughs> unless it's about geothermal power. Oh, here we go. Let's go back to the geothermal power. <laughs> uh, actually, an another thing that that um, bugged me is being inconsistent. I mean, I, I really liked the the bit where we were developing cycle history, but then it, it uh, you know, Dan's right. It follows into this kind of analysis of what's going on with these breakdowns, and that didn't work for me at all. Actually. 
because they, they don't really say, I mean, he should point out, right, that if you're looking at random events, they tend to cluster. He doesn't, mm -hmm. you know, but. Well, but he the, does say that they would cluster around, if it was bad infrastructure, they would cluster around areas that had particularly bad infrastructure, and he doesn't see that clustering. Yeah, but they should they should be they should be clustering temporarily too. Well, it doesn't right? he say something about how they don't cluster temporarily and that and that they're they're too evenly spread out and. Yeah, but but here's the thing, right? Because because the, the premise, and this is why it doesn't work, and you're absolutely right about that. But the premise here is that it's an old planet and it's starting to break down. Right. And the Juranomites are they're not creating all of the breakdowns; they're adding some. Okay. And so there should be plenty of randomness to, to be disguising the uh, the regularity thing. of the uh, you know of these things, and that, that just really fell flat. He he could have gone a little more deeply into the math there. Yes, a little bit. Yeah. yeah. Well, maybe he was isolating only the ones that were caused by human error. And then saying that that I, I don't know, it doesn't matter. You're right. You're absolutely right, Joseph. It, it was not. Uh, I, I guess, you know, you always reach that point where you have to ask as a writer, do you go into technical details and risk losing large chunks of your audience? Or do you just kind of fake it and hope that the people reading fight through that and don't abandon you <laughs> when you get technical? So I, I don't know. But uh yeah, it's a fair point. It, it felt pretty thrown together. He seems at odds with himself sometimes, like when he talks about having noticed the murder of Kaspilov and how, you know, how many murders there are, unsolved murders there are on Trantor, that unfortunately, I guess he must have done some kind of a numerical analysis and realized that on a bad day, there might be a million murders on a planet of 40 billion people. <laughs> you know, And that there was no way that that you could investigate those so how did kaspilov's murder come to his attention like that that i don't remember the details on that that's it's just that seemed very convenient to me that that yeah, there's a million unsolved murders a day in a bad day but this one well this one really caught our attention and i was kind of thinking well how how did that catch your attention it got flagged for having a ridiculous name <laughs> I don't know. I think there might be there might be a lot of ridiculous names on Trantor. I I I Manella de Banqua. <laughs> like, don't you look at that and go, I have to come back to that later and fix that because that's, mm. that's not gonna work. Now yeah, now suddenly you know I know he doesn't rewrite though. That's right. Now I'm suddenly thinking of her as Cruella Deville. I like sure does, does she have a thing against dogs i don't know yeah. yeah maybe there are some dalmatians in the next chapter possible i'm trying to think what else to say about this chapter it's it's uh this is this is becoming a a little bit of combat between the reader and asimov trying to get yeah. trying to get all the way to the end of this well one other thing that, that jumped out at me and, and it's not a major point but we hear about Sisyphus. Yes. Yeah. And and it, it it strikes me that we don't even know what Earth is. And the idea that this story might have persisted uh, seems a little bit of a stretch. I mean, Hugo objects. He's he's like, what what the hell is that? Is it Hugo? Yeah. He's talking so. about Sisyphus. And 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 uh, Harry just says, well, it's an old story that I heard somewhere. Um, I mean, I get, I guess. You could you could sort of say that. Oh boy, this is this is complicated. 
it, it, it could be something where in the universe, there's an analogous story. And the writer Asimov translates it into the Sisyphus story for us so that we understand it. Even though it's an ancient story in universe, it might be a different story that, that we're, like, like Tolkien explained this process about how the common tongue that the hobbits use is of course not English, but he has to translate. He's, he's the, the, the uh, you know, the, the shtick is that he's translating something written in their language into English. And so he translates that as the common tongue. But of course, it's actually a translation of a different language, but he needs to translate it into English so we can read it. In the same way, something like a reference like that could be, well, it's not really Sisyphus. It's it's some other story, but I'm going to give uh, you Sisyphus. I, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm trying to help Asimov as much as I can here. So I'll give so, you that. Temba his arms wide. There you go. <laughs> is, is that the same process by which we get riding the Gretty for riding the tiger? Oh yes, that that's right. That's that's a good point. The uh, that's right. But yeah, if we had that process, it would have said tiger, right? A helicon. Well, I don't know. It's a heliconian animal. Mm. We don't know what kind of animal. Maybe there are Gretties. Maybe there I'm, are I'm, <laughs> that look just like tigers. I mean, it's there's a sort of an interesting thing about that, that that Asimov does throughout these books, which is that he establishes that the biodiversity of most planets is very narrow. Yeah. And it's a piece of evidence in favor of the idea that we all came from some homeworld and that one of the things that we're going to get in the sequels, if we ever get there, is, you know, one of the indicators of a potential human homeworld is a much broader biodiversity that we would have brought with us certain plants and animals, which would have, we would have allowed to take over the natives and, and push them out. So there wouldn't have been a lot of native stuff left. Now, I have no idea, by the way, whether there's any validity in that idea. Uh, I bet somewhere there's someone who's thought about that. But I just thought it was an interesting idea. Like, it, you know, it happens linguistically. Like, if you look at mm -hmm. um, Polynesian languages, for example, we can trace the movement of Polynesian peoples across the Pacific Ocean because the languages are very, very similar over a span of many thousands of miles. But if you trace them all the way back to the island of Formosa, where they started, there's an enormous amount of ancient linguistic diversity there yeah. which, because that's the starting point. But as the, as the branch moves out in an arc across the ocean, they take pretty much one language and bring it all out there. So there's no language diversity on the route out into the Pacific, but at the, at the home world, at the home, not the home world, at the home island, there's an enormous amount of language diversity. So that, this is analogous to that. And, and, and I, I, I'm just, it's thoughtful. I think yeah. that, would, that actually, it, it seems to make a lot of sense because if you look at certain invasive species, and I don't know if you've ever, any, either of you have ever driven through Atlanta, there are, entire huge tracts of land and, and 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 what were probably forests that have just been covered and destroyed by kudzu right which was introduced as a native species i mean and it's 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 really kind of creepy and disturbing to look at it right, right. but if you you know just going with the, the 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 thought here if we start with something that comes from a planet with a tremendous amount of biodiversity, then that means that it's been, you know, it's, it's evolutionarily going to be much more competitive. If you introduce it to a planet with a little bit of biodiversity, those, those plants and animals probably wouldn't have had to 
to fight as hard to to continue. Right, especially to if they've got your thumb on the scale for them, because you brought that, them that, with you, that and, too. you want, and you want them to you want them mm. to thrive. Daniel, I thought you were going to say something there about the, this crazy linguistic theory. Oh yeah, no, I mean I, I think that uh, it's it works for linguistics as well as genetics, right? I mean, I, and I think that what uh, the human genetic diversity being greatest in Africa right. must have been established by the time that Asimov came up with right. this idea. I, I assume I don't I don't know how far that back that dates, but it seems to be relevant. Yeah. Yeah, but but in this context, we call them Southerners. <laughs> yes, that's right. Oh my god. Southerners have all the genetic diversity. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> I'm not even gonna go there. <laughs> no, let's not. Let's stay away from that. What else can we say about Cleon? I I, I admit I I was the first time I read this. He got me with that twist. He got me with the twist at the end where it seemed like everything was fine. Yeah. We'd saved the day in our cheesy way. And then, um, no, we haven't because Cleon has been assassinated by the gardener. Uh, I did not, I was not prepared for that at all. I, it's been a very long time since I read it the first time, but I think I was fooled too. It was a, it was a, I mean, among Asimovian twists, this is definitely one of the harder to foresee because of how stupid it is. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's give Asimov a little bit of credit because yeah. he gave us the first twist he gave us that Manella was an undercover agent. Yeah. That one was kind of foreseeable. Like, yeah. I don't know that I foresaw that, but you could sort of like, okay, that, you know, I yeah. see that and maybe I might have guessed something or was suspicious. So he gave us the easy one. Yeah. And then hit us with the one that none of us saw coming. Yeah. yeah, even if it was stupid. <laughs> I mean, I, I can remember quite clearly the first time I read this. I didn't. Um, well, actually, I was a little bit suspicious of of the first one, but the, the but the gardener Gruber. Yeah, I, looking back at it, all the all, all the signs were there, and 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 he got me. There were because Gruber, although he seems like a sort of a kindly, gentle guy, mm-hmm. he did come running up during the assassination attempt with a rake. Mm-hmm. to try to fight the guy with the blaster. So, you know, he did have a little bit of a, a violent aggressiveness in him mm-hmm. that later on he's all very humble and, and self-effacing, but he actually is, you know, he is willing to take action. Yeah. So you're right. The signs are there. Yeah. Well, and he's really, really emphatic about not wanting to be oh, a yeah. gardener. Oh, really. um, and there's a, there's a, there's, a, I think a nice throwaway line in that. And I can see it from this character. Um, where he said, "Oh, I had the you know he had the opportunity because the the you know there, there was the attack and it would have been a Jorah Numite who 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 assassinated the um, the emperor, um, or at least people would assume was a Jorah Numite who uh, assassinated the emperor and he would be safe. So it was a it was a crime of opportunity. It wasn't something that that was uh, planned. A crime of passion. Yes." <laughs> I feel bad for Gruber then. Oh yeah. Because <laughs> you think being in an office is bad. I think being in a cell is, is I, gonna, he's not gonna be in a cell. That, that's a good point. He's not <laughs> even, so maybe that maybe that would be better. Yeah. Because he certainly didn't want to live as head gardener. No, no. I mean I feel worse for Azura's friends. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah. <laughs> who uh, you know 
there was a, a Joel was a a guest on a uh, on a podcast. <laughs> they talked about uh, our take on that on on uh, on Brother Day, you know, doing the the, mm -hmm. the gesture with his hands, and how we said there ought to be somebody in the background. I think Dan, I think it was you said there should be a, a gardener who just like you know falls to the ground, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> just by association with Azura, which which would have been. Would have been nice funny, touch. but maybe, yeah. Maybe, yeah, maybe a little out of place, maybe a little too much. And so what's the next the next section after uh, after this is, I think, about doors. Yeah, the next doors section is doors. Probably. It's going to be action packed. We're going to see doors in action. The tiger Just, woman. The tiger woman or in the, action. The I forgot they were called now. It doesn't matter. <laughs> <laughs> the things they were writing. The, the gritty. Was it a gritty? Yeah. yeah, the gritty woman. The gritty woman. <laughs> Do not get in her way. Do not get between doors and her brood, basically. Mm -hmm. So we're gonna we're gonna see some of that. That's gonna be fun. The most fun we've had since the knife fight in Dahl. Something to look forward to. Something to look forward to. Well, that brings this week's episode to a close. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, subscribe and give us a like and a positive review on your favorite platform. You can also visit our website at starsendpodcast.wordpress.com, where there's always additional content. Our music, used by a Creative Commons license, is It Is Coming by Alex Mason. Also, follow us on Twitter, at starsendpodcast. Goodbye for now from the galactic capital of Trantor. This is where the stars end. <laughs>